Brethren, I invite you to first turn in your copies of the Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I have two passages today. I'll be preaching from Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 19, and then also Romans 12, 1 through 13. We'll begin with Deuteronomy 10. Here once again, the very Word of God. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, And he chose their descendants after them above all the peoples, as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing." Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And now from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 13. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have been, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, and he who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Let us pray together. Father, as we consider the Scriptures that teach us how we are to exhibit our faith before You and before men, we pray that we would have a better understanding of the admonition that Paul gives us to be given to hospitality. 
We thank You, Father, that when we were strangers to You, You chose us out of darkness to become children of light. You purchased our redemption when we were Your enemies. You were gracious and merciful to us when we were undeserving. And so, Father, may we exhibit these kinds of attributes to those who are outside the covenant community, that they may see the love of Christ that was shed in our lives by Your Spirit, that they too might have that same love and compassion shed within their lives as they are confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ. Bless us as we live our lives in conformity to Your Word, Lord, and may we do so with humility and thanksgiving. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of attending uh, a conference down in Louisville where a dear pastor friend of mine spoke on hospitality. And those uh, lectures that we heard ring in my ears even to this day. And so today I wanted to share some of those thoughts with a little bit of a different perspective. And I intend to do this both today and next week, and possibly even into a third week. We live in an inhospitable nation and world. We have in recent history seen the increase in terrorist acts perpetuated against all sorts of peoples throughout the world. My suspicions are that they have been uh, perpetrated throughout the ages as well. But in our day of modern media, we have the ability to witness it in our own living rooms when before it was beyond our eyesight. No longer is that the case. You can hear it on the radio. You can see it on the television. What had been relegated to the gulags of communist countries or third world Muslim nations is now seen worldwide. ISIS has made paganism mainstream. In our own nation, we have seen what we perceive to be an increasing inhospitable spirit overtaking us as we consider our fellow citizens. To be sure, I am not advocating tolerance for injustice. What I am saying is that civil tolerance is becoming, in increasing measure, intolerant. Recently, polls have been taken that indicate a large percentage of people believe violence is warranted against those who engage in, quote, hate speech, end quote. However, that is defined. Consider an innocent holding of a door by a man for a woman when entering a building, or the giving up of a seat for a woman on public transportation. What used to be an occasion for a warm thank you today is often greeted with a shocked look or outright derision by the recipient. I have heard this from the lips of our congregation. What are we becoming? What are we becoming? The answer to that question is we are becoming more like who we are. That's what we're becoming. We are becoming more like who we are. 
As our nation jettisons all vestiges of its Christian history, we are left with who we, were, who we are without Christ, sinful to the core. Thus, when the cleansing power of the blood of Christ is removed, the rottenness of sin and death overtake men and their societies. And what is left from the shining light on a hill that was our nation has become a flickering oil lamp whose oil is all but gone. Today I want to consider how we as individual Christians and a community of believers should respond to this circumstance. The solution is not far away that we cannot reach it. It is not only found in the heavenlies, and it is most evident there, it is also not only found on the other side of the world, for there are nations in this world who embrace faithfulness. It is found in the Scriptures, which is in our hands. And it is taught to us by God Himself, both didactically and by example. I've chosen our two passages today and chosen to, to preach on this again next week for several reasons, but some of which are contained in the passages that we've already read. There are presuppositions that are the core of the principle of hospitality that are spoken of in both of these passages. The core principle of hospitality generates from God's initiating reconciliation with those who are estranged from Him because of sin. Hospitality starts there. Hospitality begins with God declaring those whom He will shine His favor upon. In Deuteronomy 10, God reminds Israel to follow Him and His statutes because of His covenantal relationship with the fathers of Israel. Verses 15 and 16 read, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. God's graciousness extended to a stiff-necked people because of His covenanted promises to Abraham to make Him the father of many nations. Therefore, God calls all Israel to circumcise the foreskins of their hearts. In other words, God is saying to Israel, live your lives in light of my covenantal promises to you. Live like the chosen of God. The Apostle Paul speaks similarly to the church in Romans 12. There we read in the first two verses, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here the Apostle appeals to the regeneration God has wrought in the lives of those who make up the church. Verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 comes on the heels of Paul reminding the church of God's covenantal promises to all Israel in Isaiah 59, where Paul recites, "...the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them." 
when I take their sins away. This appears in Romans chapter 11, this quotation from Isaiah 59. Just as Israel was covenanted to God by, by God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is covenanted to us by and through the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, who takes our sins away. We have been reclaimed from sin and death when we were far from God. We were His enemies. And Christ came to seek and to save us, we who were lost. God initiated that reclamation, and He shall keep us throughout all eternity. He has purchased our reclamation, and we are His. In my prayer earlier, I spoke of Peter's rendition of this. We are God's holy nation, a royal priesthood, His own special people. Moses calls us the apple of God's eye in Deuteronomy. God has covenanted with His Son on our behalf to redeem us, and we are His. Again, in both passages, the Deuteronomy 10 passage as well as the Romans 12, God teaches His people that we are enslaved by our sin and the curse of death, but God liberates us from slavery. In Deuteronomy 10, we read beginning in verse 17, For the Lord your God is is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, we the strangers, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. In the history of Israel, there are profound ironies. Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, was left for dead by his brothers and later sold into slavery, only to become a deliverer of Israel in time of famine. A slave becomes a deliverer. Tremendous irony there. The same nation that provided for the Israelites in time of famine, though, became the very nation that enslaved Israel under the heavy hands of tyrannical pharaohs. God would send another deliverer, an adopted son of Pharaoh, the slaveholder, and his name was Moses, to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt. Again, another tremendous irony. The son of the slaveholder becomes the deliverer of the slaves. Brethren, the Israelites were not native to Egypt. They were strangers in Egypt. Nevertheless, God had compassion on these strangers and reconciled them to himself by delivering them from captivity. This temporal deliverance from Egypt was a foretaste of what was to come in Jesus Christ. And just as was mentioned earlier from Romans 11, verses 26 and 27, quote, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus has delivered us from sin and death through his crucifixion and resurrection.
He has turned ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take their sins away. Circumcise the heart. God told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10. Here we see another great irony. We have been delivered from sin and death to be made bondservants of God. We were delivered from slavery only to be made bondservants to God. This is the thrust of Paul's words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul describes us as living sacrifices. Again, this is a great irony. Aren't sacrifices required to die to be called sacrifices? Isn't the sacrifice the thing that's supposed to die? And yet Paul says we're to be living sacrifices. So how is it possible to be a living sacrifice if we're supposed to die? Paul quickly explains what he means in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, die to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live in light of the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are to be the proof that God is acceptable. It is to be evident in us as living sacrifices. Again, we must die to the world and conform ourselves to the will of God by the renewing of our minds. This isn't news to my congregation, the men and women that I serve. You hear this often, but we need to be reminded again. Now what is this phrase, to prove, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? We are to be the very proof of the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. We are to be the evidence. If there were a a court taking evidence about our faith and the faithfulness of the God we serve, we are to be the evidence. We are the ones that are to give proof that that is the case. So this begs the question, How do we do it? How do we become that proof? What must we do to be evidence of a faithful, true, and living God? Well, I'll endeavor to flesh this out in greater detail next week, but for now, we should focus our attention on what we find in our two passages. Brethren, God is gracious toward us in that He does not leave us in ignorance. We often say this when we recite the Ten Commandments. Tom, in his preface to the singing of the Ten Commandments this morning, reminded us of this once again. God tells us graciously what it means to reflect His image to the world. Our God knows that our minds have been corrupted by sin to such a great extent 
that we need very explicit instructions on how to overcome the world. He needs to tell us this in great detail. And He does. If we are to become something we are not, we're to deny this world and embrace the transforming of our minds. If we're to become something we are not, if we are to renew our minds from something to something else, we must know what we are to conform to. What is the standard? Where do we make that judgment? How do we know we're doing it properly? Again, God does not leave us in ignorance. In Deuteronomy 10, we read in verses 12 and 13 these words, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command to you for your good. Sounds a whole lot like the first great commandment, doesn't it? Remember, Jesus summarizes the summary of the commandments with two great commandments. First, to love the Lord God, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then your neighbor as yourself. Jesus added a third commandment. He said, and I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. God the Son has clearly stated what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Is love an attribute of the wicked? Is love an attribute of those who know nothing of Christ? Well, you say, yeah, they're... There might be some loving acts that they do occasionally. Yeah, but is it an attribute of their lifestyle? Is it who they are? Again, if they were taken into the court of law, would there be sufficient evidence to say that those who know nothing of God or His Son Jesus Christ could be called people who truly love? Jesus not only didactically tells us that the commandments that He has given us are those things that please Him, He graciously gives us examples of what this means. The doing of the commandments is summed up in hospitality. And I would submit that that's the summary statement of Paul in our text. Now, I must quickly state what I do not mean. I am not saying we are only to invite people to our homes in hospitality for a lavish meal from time to time and believe we are doing all we can for the kingdom of God. I'm not despising that, but we need to do far more than that. What I am saying is that hospitality, as God describes it, is a summation of dying unto the world and living unto God. Let me say that again. I am saying that hospitality, as God describes it, is a summation of dying unto the world and living unto Him, becoming living sacrifices. So how does God describe Himself as being hospitable? Consider the end of our passage in Deuteronomy 10. This is God's description of how He is hospitable. 
Beginning in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you, the implied you there, therefore you love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. What does it mean to be hospitable? To love the stranger? To provide for him food and clothing? Why? Because that's who we were before God and before our salvation. We were strangers to God. And He initiated contact with us. He came to us in grace and mercy and said, here, eat, be clothed. The food that we eat, we're about to eat the most precious food we could that represents the body and blood of Christ. And how are we clothed in God? In Christ's righteousness. That's what God brought to us. That's hospitality. Israel, you were strangers in a strange land, and I delivered you, God said. When the Israelites left the, uh, Egypt, I say this over and over, did they, they leave cowering, hoping to get out before Pharaoh actually saw what was happening? No. The, the Egyptians paid them to leave. It was evident that they belonged to God. That they were the people of God. It was evident. Judgments were being poured out on Egypt. And the people of Egypt said, we can't take this any longer. You are the people of God. They asked them to leave and paid them to go. Brethren, consider also the Apostle Paul's admonitions in verses 9-13 through of Romans 12 with regard to how God exhibits hospitality. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Boy, this sounds an awful lot like the second great commandment, doesn't it? Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Do this out of the gratitude of your heart. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. God will bring tribulation into your life. But be patient. God is doing a perfect work in you. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Oh, oh that we would all be better at that. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. We're to give ourselves over to hospitality. Brethren, love for strangers manifests itself in hospitality. And not just any hospitality. It is a hospitality desiring the deliverance of that person from bondage to sin and death. Do we look upon our coworker in that regard? Our neighbor in that regard? 
our own family members, do we look at them with that kind of hospitality in mind? I want to see them delivered from sin and death. I want to share my life with them, even the warts, along with the good things, that they might see how God has worked a good work in me. Though they're strangers from God, I want them to be sons and daughters of the living God. And I'm going to share my life with them to that end. Ask yourselves a few questions. Do we want to see the kingdom of God flourish? Do we want to see our society reformed, transformed? Do we want our children to see a lively faith that is transformational in the toppling of principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places? I hope we do. I think we do. If so, we need to seek out those estranged from God, strangers of God, and show hospitality toward them as Christ has shown it toward us thus proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Brethren, much more needs to be said regarding this subject, and so we'll return to it next week, possibly a third week. Then I want to spend some time preaching on the Reformation. But suffice it to say, hospitality is more than a fine meal for a friend. Hospitality, as is defined by God, is presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, dying to this world, and embracing God's good gifts, showing that to the lost who are estranged from God, that they might come to Him by faith. Let us pray together.